Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week, we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us this week in Brussels. Uh, hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So... In the second half of the show, we will be actually talking about dinosaurs. That is a new one for us, so stick around uh, to hear about the economics of dinosaurs, to the delight of my six-year-old, I'm sure. But first, something more from the news. So, the news data point this week is negative 0.9. That is the annualized rate of growth, or I guess rate of decline, as it happens, of the U.S. GDP. Oh my gosh, down nine-tenths of one percent on first look at second quarter GDP. As the GDP report is out today and signals the U.S. economy shrank 0.9 percent at an annual rate in the second quarter. The GDP drop uh, reflects declines in private inventory investment, residential fixed investment, uh, and federal government spending. So that has led to a debate about whether we're now in a recession in the United States. We'll get into why that's a debate rather than just a simple observable fact in, in just a second. But the other remarkable thing about these GDP numbers is that they're paired with ominous inflation numbers released from the day before. So high inflation paired with declining growth, that's uh, the economic state known as stagflation, which is a whole nother debate that economists are having about the present economy. So to dig into all this, Adam, I guess I first wanted to ask about stagflation. Economists apparently used to believe that this combination of stagnation in the economy and inflation was impossible, if I understand correctly. So why did they think that in the first place? This is really a crucial question to understand, as it were, why stagflation seems like a contradiction in terms. And, and the basic logic here is that inflation is driven by aggregate demand. That's the total volume of purchasing power chasing the amount of goods and services that are on offer or that an economy is able to produce in a given period. So an inflationary situation is one in which demand exceeds supply, broadly speaking, and so prices will go up. But that would lead you to predict not stagnation, of course, but rapid economic growth, right? Because if there's this demand out there in the economy for production, then production will boom. It's only really when all possibilities for physically increasing the supply of goods and services has been exhausted or that it's getting at the margin more and more expensive that you would expect prices to rise. So from, from this point of view, the idea that you could actually combine slow growth or slowing growth or even recession with inflation just seems like a, a contradiction. Indeed, from the 1950s onwards, there was a very famous trade-off curve known as the Phillips curve after a New Zealand economist, William Phillips, and a paper he published in 1958 that described a 
trade-off between higher rates of unemployment and lower inflation or lower rates of unemployment and higher inflation. In other words, as the economy ran hot and the labor market got tight, you'd expect inflation to accelerate and, and the reverse. So for inflation and stagnation to occur at the same time means that something really is broken in the economy. Something's gone wrong. It basically means that aggregate demand, the purchasing power that's out there, is being swallowed up by increasing prices and not being translated into economic output and growth, even though you would expect capacity to be there. And it means probably that businesses and employees are kind of locked in an inflationary psychology where they think that the priority has got to be not to maximize production or efficiency or whatever, but just keep up with the constantly rising level of wages and prices. And that's a deeply unhealthy state for the economy to be in. The last time we were there was really in the 1970s. Uh, where you did see a shocking deceleration in the growth rate from the 60s through to the 70s and a surge in inflation. Whether we're going to see anything really remotely as bad as that, I think, is, is, is more than unlikely. But nevertheless, this year we are seeing this conjunction of slowing growth, the most rapid slowdown in growth we've seen in 80 years, actually, and uh, combined with rising inflation, which has given rise to this meme of stagflation as a way of describing our current situation. So as I said, there seems to be some ambiguity about whether the United States is in a recession at all. President Joe Biden denies that the United States is in a recession. People on the other side straightforwardly are describing it as a recession. So why is there this ambiguity at all? And who decides if there's a recession or not, Adam? Because um, the economy isn't like a game for which there's a single referee, a single authority. There's no, there's no absolute authority in economic commentary. It's a de to a degree conventional and by convention in the US, it's the National Bureau of Economic Research and specifically its Business Cycle Dating Committee that calls this. It was a committee that was set up in 1978 and it's adopted as a kind of conventional definition the idea that uh, two periods, two quarters, so that's six months, of a decline in GDP is the best measure. And so that's, that's why, as it were, there's a, there's a degree of argument here, because it's a question of deciding on the, on the referee, it's a question of deciding on the metric to use, and then de deciding what movement in that metric will actually constitute a recession. You might think that this was really a matter simply of empirical evidence or something like that, but that's really uh, naive to imagine, I think, that, that that by itself is enough to decide this issue. So they're looking for two straight quarters of economic contraction. I mean, how long has this been the definition of a bad economy exactly? I mean, and are there alternative ways of deciding or of describing what a bad economy is? I mean, right now we're talking about the GDP growth rate, but are there sort of other more important indicators of an economy's health? The unemployment rate in the United States is, you know, pretty low. Is that a sign that the economy is actually strong rather than in a bad state? Yeah. So the, so the NBR was established in 1920 as, as a, an agency to, to measure the American economy at the same time as a bunch of business cycle institutes were also established in Europe and places like Germany, even the Soviet Union. And the reason they focus on GDP is it's by far and away the most aggregative measure of economic activity. And labor would be a good measure, but it's only one market, it's the labor market. And you could measure, and in the 19th century, so-called business cycle economists did measure the swings in the economy by using things like indicators like the iron, iron and steel production or railway traffic, which are very dramatic. And those capture swings in the business cycle are often in, in an anticipatory way because you can see movements in railway activity or iron and steel production track uh, investment activity, which tends to turn down ahead of the rest of the economy. 
but they are by definition rather limited measures of economic uh, activity. And to get the whole, to get the whole economy, what you really need is is a measure of a total production or total expenditure or total income, and that's what. GDP or national income numbers measure, and that's why we focus on them. They tend the swings in GDP tend to be more mild; they're not as dramatic, which is why, as limited a contraction as two quarters of GDP uh, negative growth in GDP are enough to warrant a description as a recession, because that generally goes hand in hand with some much more severe shocks in particular sectors, which are going to be particularly hard hit. Got it. So, if we are in fact in a recession, would it be fair to say that the proximate cause in this instance was the decision by the central bank in the United States? And, you know, I guess by analogy, if there are recessions elsewhere, the central bank's there to raise interest rates. Uh, obviously, we all know that there are these dramatic increases in interest rates in the United States. Leaving aside whether that was necessary, was that the cause of this potential recession? Yes, absolutely. What the central banks want to do is to prevent market-driven inflation getting out of hand. And so they make a surgical strike, if you like, at a relatively early stage of this process. The idea being, I think, that if you do that, you prevent the excesses of an inflationary spike really running their full course. And overall, though it's painful in the short run, that'll be better for the overall economy if central banks intervene in that way. So to that extent, we live in really quite um, into you know managed market economies we don't we don't live we never really experience the full flux of uh, a market economy unregulated by and un- unmanaged by central bank intervention the, the vast majority of recessions in the united states in recent years have been brought about in, in to a considerable extent as a result of the tightening of monetary policy so when we look at the course of the business cycle in the us we are seeing the fingerprints of of central bank policy everywhere Yeah, I guess that leads to my final question. This relates to your last big essay for FP, which I would encourage everyone to read on the sort of analogy between today and the 1970s and the ways that's not apt. And one of the things you describe there is how, as a result of sort of winning the social conflicts that emerged in the 1970s over inflation, et cetera, central banks have concentrated tremendous power in their hands over the economy in general. And yeah, that raised for me the question kind of what what happens if they screw up? I mean, what if kind of in this situation, if they sort of overcorrect and it causes a bigger recession than maybe was necessary, does this concentration of power make them more politically vulnerable to a kind of insurrection in economic terms, a sort of exposing the central banks to the public once the public becomes conscious of this kind of political arrangement? You know, so yeah, is economic power that's concentrated and insulated in the hands of central banks in this way, just ultimately more fragile in a broader political sense. Yeah, I mean, I think this question of, you know, what an insurrection would look like is the really core one, because, you know, in the 1970s, you could talk of large-scale organized labor as a potential countervailing force in modern societies. Certainly in, in Europe, this was true to a considerable extent in the UK. Governments were toppled by um, protesting and striking uh, trade unionists. In Italy, we have you know a situation that created deep anxiety on the part of the State Department and the national security apparatus in the U.S. Even in the U.S., where there was no threat really of insurrection, there was nevertheless you know genuine uh, large-scale organized labor as a countervailing force in economic policy that was also taken seriously. Um, those were all, however, forces which tended to push in an inflationary direction. I mean, if, if the Fed and other central banks were accused of, you know, in your words, screwing up in the current moment, it's, it's not for 
um, it's, it's, it's after all not for failing to enable the economy to run hot. That's exactly what they've done. And so what we would be facing with today is a reaction, uh, an insurgency against inflation, a kind of deflationary insurgency. And that, that's, I mean, that's de facto the politics of conservatism. And, and, and we see that kind of politics, of course, um, brought into play in the current moment in Germany in particular, in other parts of Europe, we're going to see, I think, particular uh, pressure now brought to bear on the ECB to do something about inflation. But it's pretty difficult to really conceive of what a deflationary insurrection would look like as a as a kind of movement. What we have seen is not so much insurrection as just sort of populist clashes. So one only has to go as far back as 2019, um, the final two years of the Trump presidency, to see the way in which tension can build up between a thoroughly unprincipled administration that that really has no interest in anything other than good economic numbers and a booming stock market and and the Fed, which um, in 2019 was still trying to engineer a tightening of monetary policy, what they call the normalization of monetary policy. And, and before COVID hit and changed the economic policy game entirely, there was really the risk of a kind of quasi-constitutional clash between the Trump administration and the Federal Reserve economists uh, who, who run monetary policy over this issue of whether the Fed would be you know, w- would would be able to carry through a program of normalization, in other words, a policy of raising interest rates without facing really damaging attacks from Trump and the Trumpy wing of the GOP, which quite like the idea of stripping the Fed of power, though, though, though their vision of monetary policy tends to, you know, tend towards the gold standard, which if anything would be even more deflationary. Certainly in the current moment with the Biden administration in charge, there's very little uh, risk of that kind of scenario. The, the Biden people are far too mainstream to want to attack the Fed in any kind of way. So right now, given the particular risks and the particular accusations against the central banks, it's pretty hard to imagine a insurrectionary type um, challenge to any of the major central banks in the West. Um, but certainly the politics of central banking remains very much alive and and is indeed delicate and, and can be quite explosive. Just to clarify here, I mean, is it really not possible to imagine a kind of populist energy on monetary policy from the left, a movement to make monetary policy more political, to make it more explicitly progressive or leftist, to remove it from sort of technocratic insulation and just make it, yeah, make it serve the people in a more progressive way? Is that not an imaginable sort of circumstance? You're kind of breaking my heart, Cam, because like until a year or two ago, that would be, of course, the politics that the folks like myself were really direct, very directly involved in and um, and pushing for. But I mean, the current conjuncture um, and and the f- for the foreseeable future really suggests that that's you know a vain hope in the in the current moment. Why? Because uh, because the inflationary pressure is so severe currently, and with with inflation numbers up close to ten percent both in Europe and the United States, the moment for an active expansionary monetary policy is just not is just not right. There's very little, I think, viability in political terms for that for that kind of politics, which, which was certainly, I think, a horizon for, you know, a kind of optimistic vision of economic policy in the last couple of years, and 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 indeed on a whole variety of issues. And progress has been made. The, the agenda of central banking is significantly widened. One of the reasons why the Fed was so slow to tighten is that it was, in fact, to a degree, prioritizing the labor market, which is part of its mandate. And in fact, it was prioritizing prioritizing social justice considerations in the sense that it was part of its dashboard for the US labor market was blackmail unemployment, which is the most sensitive indicator of, you know, how how much slack there is in the American labor market. 
But um, the huge and uh, shock to the price system from the from the issue, you know, the very variety of issues which have arisen, we've talked about several times in 2021 and 2022, has just completely changed the the nature of this game. Now that doesn't mean that one couldn't still, you know, advocate for much greater democratization of monetary policy, and indeed the push towards. Um, you know, more conservative stance makes that in many ways um, more important. But we're certainly no longer in the space in which the aim of the game was, if you like, to use central banks to facilitate larger scale and more ambitious politics in, in other areas. It's It's been a very sudden sea change, I think. And um, I think uh, those of us interested in the progressive development of economic policy have yet to really come to terms with the implications of this, because it's a really very dramatic pivot. Well, I did not mean to sort of stick my finger in your wound there, Adam. But uh, yeah, we do need to do need to leave it there for now. But we will be back in a second to talk about dinosaurs. So stick around. Hi, and welcome back. The next data point is twelve point four million. That is the number of dollars that a raptor, at least the bones of a raptor dinosaur, sold for at an auction uh, recently held by Christie's. The skeleton named Hector was excavated from Wolf Canyon near Edgar back in 2015. It stretches nearly 10 feet long. It is made from 126 fossilized bones that date back 115 million years. We did some listener questions a few weeks ago, and actually my six-year-old son, uh, he actually wanted to know the price of, I think he said a brachiosaurus. So it was serendipitous when we came across this data point. So Adam, I guess, first of all, is there really like a broader market here for dinosaur bones? I mean, who's buying these dinosaur bones and sort of what range of prices are we, are we talking about when we're talking about dinosaur fossils? So there is a market. Um, it's hard to get a sense of exactly how big it is from like the sort of numbers that are regularly quoted on, you know, in the sort of headline auctions. It's pretty hard to see how it could be more than maybe a hundred million dollars a year, absolute maximum. I think it's probably smaller than that, given that the really prized items go for, you know, ten, twelve million top dollar. It's important to qualify that what's being sold here is not bones, but fossils, right? So things as old as this aren't the actual organic matter bones. It's the mineral deposits that form within the bones over millions of years that are then solidified essentially into a shaped rock, right? That That is what's being sold. And this is what we mean when we say surviving blind dinosaur bones is what we actually mean is fossils. And the, the, the thing about this market is it's kind of weird in principle, you know, there's really a lot of fossils because we're talking about millions of years of deposits. I think the really difficult thing is to decide, you know, how large the legal market for this stuff is and how big the illegal market is. Because in principle, in the US anyway, if you find dinosaurs on private property, then then they're yours to keep and to buy and sell. It's different for federal land where, you know, many of these fossils come from. Their ownership is much harder to establish. And there are some notoriously um, controversial cases. Uh, another issue is international smuggling with some very significant finds coming out of Mongolia and and um, sourcing those, getting the provenance right is also highly complicated. The people that buy do include museums, but most recently and most notoriously involve celebrity buyers. So 
both uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Nicolas Cage are well known to have, you know, significant private collections. And it's those that really tend to grab the headlines and to disturb the scientific community, which is extremely concerned about these giant and significant relics of, of early life on Earth disappearing into private hands. Um, altogether, I think one shouldn't exaggerate the scale of this market. It's not, it's no, there's no gigantic piece of global capitalism. As far as brachiosauruses are concerned, um, as far as I'm able to establish, I mean, these are giant beasts, right? These are, these are not small things. And what, what I think you can buy is models. And um, I mean, those, like even a good big model of one of these brachiosauruses goes for about $100,000. So God knows what a genuine, true life, large lung would go for. I've not actually been able to find any for for sale, unfortunately. Yeah, well, that's still outside my son's price range. I think he'll have to save his allowance money for a while to get to that $100,000 even, I think. But I do want to burrow down a bit more on how this market has yeah, just changed how museums and research institutions gain access to, to dinosaur bones. I feel like before there was this big, I guess, celebrity market these other institutions probably didn't have much competition. So are they sort of getting crowded out? Like, what, what is the story for them these days? I think there is a real risk of that. I mean, it's easy to exaggerate the appetite of museums for large dinosaur uh, objects because you know they're, they're very difficult to display. There are, there are huge collections of dinosaurs not on display held in the vaults of the major museums all over the world. And, and for many of the more common dinosaur specimens, there are far more fossils out there in the world than there are museums that want to display them. So it's a very weird market in that sense, is that in the, the underlying commodity of fossils, is, it's not clear really how, in what real sense, it's scarce, because what is the demand for them on the marketplace? It's a very, very limited niche zone. But one thing that has happened for the really choice instances, like the T-Rexes and so on, um, what's happened there is that you build sponsorship coalitions. So a museum will bid with the backing of a corporate sponsor who will pre-commit to cover whatever the costs are going to be. And since, you know, the most expensive specimens are going for what, 12 million, 10, 15, that kind of ballpark, you know, these are commitments which large corporate sponsors of museums are willing to make, especially if they can do it in partnership. And that puts museums in a position to remain competitive in this market. I don't want to sound complacent um, because obviously this is you know, it's in some ways a terrifying prospect that this heritage should disappear into private hands. But um, I do think there are easy ways of, of ensuring that museums continue to get access um, uh, in future. Yeah, that's clarifying to say that there may not be scarcity of dinosaur fossils. I mean, that we, that we just may have all the fossils we need in some sense, because what is the demand? It's hard to clarify, I guess, but interesting. Um yeah, you mentioned, I guess, the higher end dinosaurs in this market. I mean, just to clarify, are some dinosaurs just consistently more expensive than others? Are there certain species that at any given moment are sort of the hot dinosaurs to have? Well, I mean, I think it is largely driven by, you know, sort of the attraction of movies like Jurassic Park, which has really transformed the market for and the attention. But I mean, uh, the interest in dinosaurs goes back all to the 19th century when they were first discovered and became part of large scale dinosaur exhibits. And it's really the T-Rex, I think, which dominates the entire market. That's the dinosaur which most clearly symbolizes and encapsulates the terror of these great monstrous animals that once roamed the earth. Um, so they consistently command the T-Rexes or the, 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 the bones and the fossils, which most consistently command the largest prices. So again, just to clarify here, I mean, in what sense are dinosaur fossils 
a, a public good at all. I mean, it just sort of raises the question, like, if we are investing in these dinosaur fossils in the space of museums and other research institutions, I mean, what is the return exactly? I mean, why do we even know so much about dinosaurs at all? I mean, is, is this just a kind of inefficient diversion of, of resources in some way? <laughs> this is a really terrible question. I mean, we're, we're an economics podcast and we have, to, we have to ask questions like this, but at some point, this is like terrible. I know. I, I'm, I, I'm asking it for the sake. You're not I, going to I, tell I, your son that you asked this question, Cam, like, like daddy. <laughs> <laughs> but, we should know less about dinosaurs. What are you saying? Do you know how many books I've read about dinosaurs in the last several <laughs> years? Do you know how much I know even just, uh, I mean, and I was, I was the same way. So like, I, why do we, why, I mean, this is an incredible amount of time I've even just spent talking about thing, dinosaurs in recent years. So I don't know why, just, uh, why is a fair question, right? No, 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 we should, there's, there's an answer, there's answers. Like, I mean, I mean, because in a, in a sense, right, the creation story, especially for, for Christian societies, is absolutely fundamental, right? And the, the refutation by way of the discovery of the fossil remains of truly, truly ancient history, which clearly did not fit within the conventional timelines of biblical creationism in the course of the 19th century, was completely explosive. You know, along with the Darwinian theory of evolution, which made humans descendants of monkeys, the, the existence of dinosaurs was was a really fundamental discovery of, of Victorian science. And that then made, I mean, the reason why they are public goods is because there's laws which say they are. So, you know, the 1906 Antiquities Act in the United States established a typically Teddy Roosevelt kind of measure, established the fact that um, these sorts of remains found on public land were indeed public property and valuable public property and subject to very tight regulation as to what could be done with them. And they then become part of the collective systematic knowledge about the development of life on, on our planet and uh, its vicissitudes, right? So again, another reason why the dinosaur stories for the modern world matter so much is not just that, as it were, they totally um, refute biblical creationism, but also because they then pose questions about how they became extinct. So thinking about dinosaurs is also a way of thinking about the end of the world as we know it, right? That's what makes them so fascinating is that clearly these mighty animals once dominated our earth and and then at some point they no longer do. And so the story of how that happens is itself highly significant. I mean, two further points to make, I think, are that that not a lot of money actually gets spent on paleontology. I mean, it's really quite shocking if you look at the allocation of grants by the National Science Foundation over a period of 20 or 30 years. It's it's peanuts. There are only like uh, 650 registered members or so of the Paleontology Society in the United States. I mean, there's little reason to be concerned that we're overcommitting societal resource to, to researching. Our, uh, but I mean, the horrible fact may be that, that all things are relative, right? And so one thing that dinosaurs do do is crowd out other types of study of ancient life on Earth. And, and at two ends, right? One of the things they do is as so-called charismatic megafauna, right? This is a phrase from, from environmentalism and protection of biodiversity. You know, these huge animals crowd out, on the one hand, the study of plant life on Earth, which, of course, is prior to the development of complex animals. And they also tend to crowd out the development of, you know, early mammalian um, development, which, of course, in the dinosaur story is often made into the villain of the extinction of the dinosaurs. And so, you know, within the tiny budgets that are allocated to the study of these really fundamental questions, which are really scandalously small, um, given the significance of these questions for, for our societies and our cultural understanding, you, within that limited ambit, you could say, why is your son not asking you to talk much more about 
you know, plant life on the planet before the dinosaurs arrived or the little furry animals that came afterwards, which we are, of course, more closely related than we will ever be to dinosaurs. Yeah, but there's no like sort of big paleontology that is manipulating my son into asking me about all this. It's sort of organic. He's just sort of huge animals. I, I don't think Ham. Um, yeah, no. Hilarious <laughs> 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 big paleontology that's yes, so in league with Mattel to, 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 to ruin your life. Yeah. Organization out there. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm just here to ask the questions. <laughs> um, anyway, I know while we're here, I guess I would end by asking, you know, what the heck, what exactly do you think about the premise of Jurassic Park? You You brought it up. So... For those not acquainted, uh, uh, this is a a, a movie and before that a a book that describes the kind of creation of an island sort of with living reincarnated dinosaurs for the purposes of tourism. It ends up all going wrong, obviously, in the movie. Would this be an economically viable (laughs) project? Well, apparently there are sufficient, uh, you know, Jurassic Park aficionados that there's an entire YouTube page devoted to actually crunching the numbers on this. And uh, one estimate puts the uh, the cost of construction at twenty three billion, and the <laughs> annual operating budget at over eleven billion. And wow! And, um, given the fact that apparently in the latest installation of the franchise, um, some details about the com- commercial operations of the part become no known i mean apparently not surprisingly perhaps because it's it's not very accessible apparently the park is located in a remote island off the coast of costa rica accessible only by ferry so it it only actually sees about twenty thousand visitors per day and so it's pretty difficult to amortize a project at 23 billion with an annual budget of 11 billion with only twenty thousand visitors when you think that disneyland um, pre-pandemic attendance was about fifty thousand visitors per day so it's it's not altogether clear that that uh, jurassic park as imagined is is an entirely viable business plan. <laughs> On the other hand, um, you know, venture capital these days is is pretty crazy stuff. And um, fifteen million dollars was rapidly called together to fund the you know the effort to um, recreate the woolly mammoth um, using CRISPR genome editing technology. Um, so we may not quite get it to, to dinosaurs, but um, the resurrection of woolly mammoths might uh, might seem quite quite viable. Now, other suggestions suggest it's, uh, imply that you know the way to go with this is not necessarily to create an entire theme park, but to to make other options. In other words, to incorporate you know the occasional resurrected dinosaur into to other wildlife installations, or to use uh, the occasional resurrected dinosaur for ecological management, so they could be established as apex predators, <laughs> or even, and perhaps most alarmingly, that you could, um, you know, insert dinosaur uh, DNA into um, the, the genetics of of other animals to maximise, for instance, meat production. So we can we can end up with uh, you know, ghastly hybrids of uh, modern uh, beef cattle, perhaps, and uh, uh, and dinosaur DNA to simply get them to grow bigger. Um, um, so all of those might be more viable business propositions than actually building a, a theme park. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I admit I was thinking about the insurance costs. I don't know who would sort of cover the insurance. I looked into that. Yeah. I looked into like wild insurance proposals because, I mean, presumably you'd have to get everyone to sign waivers and whether <laughs> those would be legally ironclad is like another issue. And then given what happens in the <laughs> Jurassic Park <laughs> franchise, obviously you have to reckon with the escape. Yeah. Just but, imagine but, the but, lawsuits but we all after, laugh. Yeah. 
But, but in insurance, you know, insurance exists to take on these kind of risks, right? The entire business model is like outside tail risks and you insert those tail risks then into portfolios. And of course, you'll make outsized returns on them. And so, so for instance, Allianz has devised a policy for private space travel. So, you know, these uh, crazy uh, millionaires who decide they want to take a ride into low Earth orbit or whatever, they can get personal insurance on that, on that activity. So, frankly, if... Um, you know, if you build it, they will come. I think in the insurance industry, there's there's no question at all um, that you could you could construct a market for this. It would be you know you'd have to have a few visitors eaten by the dinosaurs to establish what the precise risk profile was. Um, but you know, with a sufficient track record and be able to estimate the loss rate of visitors to the island, you could you could then begin to construct a contract to cover this. Okay, if I remember the quote from the first movie, I think it's "Life finds a way." I guess that's. You could say capitalism finds a way, uh, maybe if the technology is out there one day. Uh, still a hypothetical, and I will try to play this segment for for my son to answer his questions. I'm guessing he won't he won't listen for too long because he'll want to go outside and play basketball or something. Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks as always to my co-host Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at ones and twos pod. Remember, that's twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week.